0: Thank you for joining the Grim and Bloody podcast tonight. We have a nice episode. We have Adam Marcus, director of Jason Goes to Hell, uh, everybody's favorite Jason movie, uh, as well as writer of the se- uh, sequel to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw 3D. And uh, welcome to the show, Adam. Glad you could be a part of us. Hey, I'm so happy to be here and join you guys. Thank you. Well, I'd so- like to oh, see, there you go. <laughs> Oh, go ahead, please. <laughs> it's okay. Um, please, well, you start. <laughs> um, well, I, I wanted to mention um in, in both films yeah, and if no one's gonna start. I'll start. Ahead, you know what, Joe? You can start okay. this time. Uh, no, I was like I was joking. I was thinking one of you guys <laughs> are gonna start. Joe, I'll give you the floor. Okay, I'll take the floor. And <laughs> what yep. was What attracted you to do Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell?
1: Um, well, uh, it was less, uh, of a choice, uh, for me on that movie. It wasn't really what was attractive to me, even though I was an enormous Friday the 13th fan, but, um, I was, uh, I was 21 when I was told of the job. I was 22 when I got the job and I was 23 when I shot the movie. So, um, What had happened was when I was a little kid, when I was uh, eight years old, my best friend was this kid, Noel Cunningham. And uh, there was all these rumors that surrounded Noel about his father and that his father had made a porn movie, um, which was true because his dad actually started in pornography um, and in fact uh, had discovered Marilyn Chambers, who grew up in my hometown. And, uh, Sean had also, uh, done last house on the left. So there was this vicious kind of thing about this, about my buddy, Noel's dad. And for me, even at eight, nine years old, I was already a huge horror fan. Like anytime I could sneak and watch a movie late at night, I remember watching, uh, the original the fly, uh, when I was eight years old and my brother Kip, who was younger than me watched it with me and was, was so scared. Uh, I got in trouble because he was so scared. Um, and so, uh, I started hanging out with the Cunninghams everywhere they were. I was, and, uh, so I was around when they made Friday 13th. I was there when he did a stranger's watching. I was there when he did uh, spring break. In fact, I, I worked for his wife, Susan Cunningham, who was his editor. I worked for her on spring break when I was 13. So I was apprentice editing for, for, for Columbia pictures by that time I was 13. So That track led me down a road where I went to NYU film school. Um, I won best picture at NYU and I got two job offers. One was from David Lynch and Mark Frost to come on the writing staff of Twin Peaks season two. And the other offer was from Sean Cunningham who said, come to Los Angeles, quote unquote, be my bitch for a year and I'll give you your shot. So uh, being hungry and wanting desperately to get behind the camera, I chose the latter and I ran to, to California. Um, I, I was running two very successful theater companies back East um, at that time. Uh, but I was like, I'm, I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm going to go to Hollywood and, and, and make movies. Like, that's what I want to do. And while I was here, I had a project that I'd been workshopping with one of my closest friends in college, a guy named Dean Laurie, called Johnny Zombie. And I was trying to get that financed. And I would uh, crash... Um, industry events, charity events that friends of mine from NYU were working in catering and they would sneak me in. So I'd come in a tuxedo. Uh, I'd come and dance with as many of the, the fine women that I could dance with and hopefully pitch them and the producers I wanted to, to meet and pitch them uh, my movie, Johnny Zombie. Well, I got Roger Corman's wife very excited about the project and she wanted me to send it to her. Well, I immediately told Noel, my best friend, I told him that this had happened, knowing full well he would go right back to his dad and tell him. Well, he did, and the next morning I'm photocopying a copy of the script to send over to Corman Pictures, um, and or American International at the time, and, uh, and Sean sees the script and goes, what's that? I said, well, it's a movie I want to make. He grabs it off my desk, walks into his office, slams the door shut. Ninety minutes later, he opens, the door, up, uh, opens up the door, and says, "Come on in, Marcus, Marcus!" barks at me, and I, I ran in, and he says, "Ah, I hate this script, but I love the title. so I'm going like, to give you a million and a half half, you'll go shoot it in Connecticut." I was like, well, what now?" so, uh, so he's going to set me up for my first movie, uh, but he wanted to fire my writing partner, my, my, my good buddy, from school. And I said, the no sale. And again, I'm 21. And it's like, just, I have just enough stupidity and balls to say that I'm then, then no sale, you know, like, I'm like, I'm, you know, like I'm somebody. Um, and, uh, and I said, look, Sean, I said, give the guy a chance to rewrite it, fly him out to LA, put the two up, the two of us up in the worst motel you can find and let us write for six weeks. And if at that point you don't like what we've written, then you can fire m- my writing partner and-, and move on to somebody else. So he buys that. Now, the amazing thing is I had been living in a car at that point. Um, and by the way, not just a car, a VW Bug. Oh, dude. Um, so it was, it was a nightmare. And so I really, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to protect my friend. I also just wanted to get out of the freaking car. So I was very excited to now be in a motel or a hotel, actually, where he put us on a Holiday Inn. It was very fancy. Um, and uh, it's like for 21-year-olds, we're like, woo! Um, and we wrote for six weeks, and the script got really, really good. And so we ended up in a bidding war between New Line and Disney, and Disney had much deeper pockets, even though New Line was the right place to go. And Sean sold the movie to Disney. Problem is, they suddenly had a $10 million movie, and I was, you know, 22 um, and it was not going to happen. Like there was no way they were going to let a 22 year old film school idiot direct this movie for Disney. So I turned to Sean and said, hey, I've made you a ton of money on this movie. Um, I'm, I know I'm getting an associate producer credit on it. That's lovely. But you owe me a movie. And he said at that point, New Line is buying the rights to Jason Voorhees. And he says, if you can get that, forgive my French, but it's what he said. If you can get that fucking hockey mask out of the movie, I'll let (laughs) you write and direct it. And I said, yeah, like my first thought is, woo And then as I'm leaving the office, I'm like, wait a minute. Did he just say get rid of the hockey mask? What am I doing? Yeah, I was
0: about to say, do a Jason Voorhees movie without the hockey mask. Right. And you got a movie. Yep. Like doing a Freddy Krueger mask without Krueger.
1: right. Right. Well, here was the thing that you see that what people forget about Friday the 13th, Sean Cunningham made the first movie and then he made the ninth movie. He didn't make part two through eight. When they told Sean that they wanted to make a sequel, he was like, great, because here's the thing about Sean. Sean stole, flat out stole the plot and mechanism for Friday the 13th from Bay of Blood and then Halloween and then he stole the ending from Perry. That's what he did. Sean is one of the world's best cinematic larcenists. He never saw a good idea he couldn't steal and make his own. He did that, which by the way, no fault. Like, I'm sorry, Quentin Tarantino wouldn't have a career if he couldn't steal. He just wouldn't. He he steals from everybody. So that's fine. The problem is, you know, when Halloween was made, John Carpenter didn't want to make movies about Michael Myers. John Carpenter wanted to make tales of Halloween. He wanted to make scary movies about Halloween. So when they went to make another Michael Myers movie, he was like, fine, but we're gonna kill him in this one. So John Carpenter burns the thing to nothing. And the next movie out is season of the witch because he's like, well, Michael Myers is dead. Let's make another tale of Halloween. So, so Halloween three, even though there's so many fans who hate that movie, that's really what John Carpenter wanted to make. That's the movie he really wanted to make. So with Sean, he wanted to tell stories of the unluckiest day of the year, Friday the 13th. All Sean had was a title, by the way. He bought the script from Victor Miller. He didn't, he didn't create that story. Victor Miller wrote a script, and Sean put a title on the script because he had a great title, which is a great title. Okay. So when Paramount comes to him and says, we want to make a sequel, and he goes, great, I want to tell another story about Friday the 13th. And they said, no, 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 no. That kid in the lake, that's interesting. What kid in the lake? Literally, Sean's like, what are you talking about? You know, the kid that jumps out at the end. That's, that's your movie. And Sean's like, no, that's idiotic. Why would I want to make that movie? That's not even a character. Who is that? Well, Paramount put their heels in the, in, in the ground, and Sean said, great, I'm not directing it. So Sean came on as a profit participant for two through eight. He thought the sack on Jason's head in the, in the second movie was moronic and it was um, uh, simply a ripoff of uh, The Elephant Man. And then when they got to The Hockey Mask in part three, Sean Cunningham, quote unquote, said, That is the worst fucking idea I've ever heard. Now, here's the thing while all of these movies make all of this money, while this becomes the biggest horror franchise in the history of our industry, Sean Cunningham, year by year, becomes the man. Who stuck behind the hockey mask, even though he didn't—he didn't put the hockey mask into the movie. The hockey mask has nothing to do with Sean Cunningham. So, Sean is sitting there watching his career become smaller and smaller and smaller. Where now the only thing he can make are horror movies, which is not what Sean wanted to make. Sean Sean wanted to make kids movies. Sean wanted to make. Um, Movies about carnival performers starring Sean Penn. I kid you not, I worked in development on two year, for two years on that movie. So, Sean, wanted, Sean told me he wanted to win an Academy Award. Wow. And I was like, you're the guy who made Friday the 13th. He's like, yeah, that's the problem. So, Sean wanted the hockey mask out of the movie because Sean desperately wanted to prove that he could make something other than movies about that hockey mask, which is ironic because he had never made a movie about a hockey mask. He made a movie about a mother whose son dies and she takes revenge. He he made Agatha Christie with a lot more blood. That's what he did. And he suddenly was, you know, I always you, he's the man in the Iron Mask. He's the man in the in, you know, in, in the hockey mask. That's that's who Sean is. And he's trapped inside that thing, and that's his whole life now. So that's why he wanted the hockey mask out of the movie. So I was the instrument of you know figure this out, kid. And three days later, I bought him. I brought him a treatment. He read it. He was like, "I totally get this." It was a much darker movie. It was it was way more horror. Like no sense of humor is really dark. Um, And he loved it. Uh, New line went, "Ooh, Jesus, this is really dark. You got to lighten this up." And next thing you know, we were you know we were working on 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 what ended up becoming Jason goes to hell. But by the time I was 22, I was, you know, I was hired to write and direct that movie. Um, and you know, Sean, now you can find videos all over YouTube of Sean at convention saying, I'm the one who said, we got to get the hockey mask out of me. Literally he's saying that. And I'm like, okay, so let's take this down that road. So I'm 22 I'm standing in Sean Cunningham's office, who at this point is, I think, 53. He's Sean S. Cunningham, the creator of the Friday 13th franchise, the House franchise. This is a a man with a ton of money and a ton of power. And I'm a 22-year-old film student. And I say to Sean, hey, see now, you're going to take that hockey mask out of your movie or it's no deal and I'm not going to make your film. So either I'm the most powerful 22-year-old who ever took breath And Sean Cunningham is a eunuch or Sean Cunningham said, get that fucking hockey mask out of the movie. And I said, yeah, boss, got it. I'm on it. So either I'm, I'm a good soldier or, or, or a superhero as film student. And Sean is either a eunuch or a liar. So I'll take either one of those doors. I'm cool. (laughs) Whatever Sean wants to go with fine by me. Great. But that's the story. So that's, that's why, we had to get rid of the hockey mask. Look, what I what I will t- what I will say about this though, and why um, why Jason goes to hell went down the road it went down, which I am very proud of, by the way. Um, you know, first off, blowing up Jason seven minutes into the movie is pretty badass. Like that's badass because the audience went out of their minds. Like people cheered and jumped up and down, and then went, "Wait a minute, now what?" Like there was this. Uh, and then you cut to like the coolest character in all of Friday the 13th, dumb uh, Creighton Duke, sitting on a hill going, I don't think so. Come on. I mean, come on. I'm sorry. Come on. That's just badass. That's just, I, you know, I blew up Jason. And then I had this like amazing genius actor playing a bounty hunter who's like, no, Jason's not dead. We still got to go get him. It's just a great place to start. The other thing in reference back to the series, which again, I loved. I saw every one of those movies multiple times in the theater. Guys, from part one to part two, it's two weeks. It's two weeks between those movies time timeline wise, right? At the end of part one, it's a little boy that jumps out of Crystal Lake and pulls Alice into Crystal Lake. It's a little boy. So this little boy who drowned in the fifties is now it's 1980. He's attacking this woman, but he's still a little boy in the, in, in the muck. Within two weeks, he gains over 100 pounds, finds a nice suit of clothes, figures out how to read because he had to go to the Yellow Pages to find out where Alice lived. He then gets a driver's license or figures out a way to get a taxi so that he and his mother's head can get to Alice's house He murders her very elaborately, very sneakily too. It's a very sneaky murder. Then he carries Alice's dead body and his mom's head back to Crystal Lake to put them in his shrine. That's in two weeks, guys. So, even if you just go with those first two films, and by the way, the, the series has a careens forward, like the logic, it's all over the place. The timeline is nuts. Then in the middle of it, Roy Burns is the killer, and he's got a photograph of Jason that's in a local newspaper. I always wonder who took the photograph of, of Jason that went into the local newspaper. Was that the last they ever saw of that photographer? Was that, was that found footage? Is it the first Blair Witch Project? Um so you've got you've got this timeline that makes no sense. So the way I saw Jason goes to hell is I could somehow find a mythology that would actually cover all of the holes that are in the mythology. And that's why I went to Sam Raimi with Bob Kurtzman my my brilliant makeup makeup artist who to this day we 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 never do anything without each other. Um I, I went to Bob and said, listen, do you think Sam, because he, um, he was doing Army of Darkness at the time, and I was on set of Army of Darkness a bunch and became friendly with Sam, and I said, do you think Sam would let me have the Necronomicon for the movie? And Bob was like, yeah, why do you want it? And I said, well, you know, if Pamela Voorhees is so broken by the death of her child, wouldn't she look to the dark arts to bring her son back? wouldn't she go there if she's this mother filled with all of this guilt and shame and anger? And what if she brought Jason back, but here you've got this child who is, you know, who is, you know, mentally handicapped at the bottom of crystal Lake and he wakes up and he doesn't know where he is. And here's this kid laying in the muck and mire of this, of this dark space For 30 years, terrified, not knowing where he is. And the first thing he sees, because the camp's been closed all this time, the first thing he sees is his mother by the side of the lake fighting with this woman. And then she gets beheaded right in front of Jason. His first act is to jump out of the water and pull that woman down into the depths. But if he is, in fact, resurrected to be either a revenant or, or a deadite or whatever it is from, from the book of the dead. Well, then I buy him gaining a hundred pounds, finding Alice. I suddenly he's hell's assassin. And now everything in the timeline can work from a magical place, but it all has a certain sense of, of story that's grounded. And so that was kind of my thinking in, that's why the Necronomicon's in the movie. That's why you can kill him with that same dagger. That's why all of that stuff was there. So, it was really an effort. I mean, I, I look at it back, and I look back at it now and I go, wow, we were ahead of our time. We were the Rogue One of, of the Star Wars, I mean, of the, of the Friday 13th franchise. Because Rogue One is literally there to explain, why is there a three meter hole in the Death Star that Luke can shoot into and it blows up the Death Star? Why is that there? Well, Rogue One made you go, oh, that's why it's there. Now it makes sense. That's what the plans were for. So that's that's kind of in a nutshell why I did Jason, how that happened, and also, you know, why I took the route that I took.
2: Well, well I like the uh, – I'm sorry. Anthony, please go. go ahead, Kevin. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I, was, I thought it was interesting. You were talking about Season of the Witch. Yeah. And – um, that hope the carpenter's whole point was to, it was to do that, uh, you know, that type of film, not to do something that's a, a Michael redo. Right. Um, and there's a similarity there, as we talked about with, uh, with Sean Cunningham doing, you know, wanting that same feeling, mm-hmm. uh, with the Friday the 13th, uh, you know, series. um. Was that kind of what your motivation was? You know, going for I mean, you talked about it some just you know mm-hmm. just now that you wanted to say let's bring in the Necronomicon. Let's let's play this uh, you know this up. Mm-hmm. The rest of these sequels don't seem to make too much uh, you know sense in a linear timeline. Right. So let's explain it with the fantasy mm-hmm. uh, of that. I was wondering if you could, you know talk a little bit more about that sure. and. Also talk about how if you were involved in the casting process. Oh, 100%. What gave you the idea of Stephen Williams? I could tell you about how amazing he is, but uh, as far as I personally think. Mm-hmm. But give me what your
1: impression was. Well, okay, so the fir- first things first, um, when it came to um, – when it came to exploring the idea of making this more magical, I think that started, really started with part six. Tommy McLaughlin, who's a great filmmaker and a great guy and the sloths mm-hmm. of the great band. Um, Tommy, um, what he did in part six by suddenly making what they all started referring to as zombie Jason, right? So you've got this sort of Frankenstein's monster scene where the, you know, the, the metal stake is put through his heart, the lightning hits it, he's resurrected. Great he's making Jason into now officially a monster and something that's come back from the dead. And how do you kill what's already dead True. by part seven? They were so out of ideas at Paramount. They were like, I know we'll do Jason versus Carrie. Cause that's what the movie is. It's him versus Carrie white. That's the movie. By part eight, they're like, um, Jason versus, I don't know, what's the baddest city in America? Oh, New York, Jason versus New York. There you go. He's going to, he's going to be against the entire aisle of New York, which is, which is amazing. I mean, that's just an amazing idea. The problem is it really was Jason on a boat for 70 minutes and then he gets to New York for the last 18 and really he's actually in Montreal. So, um, so, there was, there was for me, as an audience member, the train wasn't just slowing down. It was like coming off the tracks and hitting the walls. And so, I really desperately wanted to make these movies that I adore. I wanted to give them some context where I didn't feel cheated anymore by them. The other thing is, I was told to take the mask out of it. So, I went, okay. Um, I still wanted to be Jason. So... If Jason is this monster, if Jason is this, is Hell's Assassin, which is what we kept t- saying about him as we were making the movie, if he's Hell's Assassin, then he would find a way. Evil finds a way to survive. And by going into each person, one of my favorite, look, one of my favorite horror films is The Thing. I adore that movie. I've always adored it. I love, ah, that's Yay. awesome. I, yes. I, I love I love the original thing. I love John Carpenter's remake. Um, I, I, I love those movies. And the thing that I love about John Carpenter's version is this sense that anyone can be the monster. That sense of paranoia. Because I'm also like, a, I'm a huge Roman Polanski fan, Rosemary's Baby, The Tenant. I, I love the idea of you can't trust anybody, right? So how do I make a Friday the 13th movie that has those tropes. How can I play that out? And this idea that the person you love, your lover, your best friend, your girlfriend, any of them can be Jason at any given moment. I also really love the idea of what happens to you when your body takes the punishment that Jason's body takes, and then Jason leaves you. And that kind of led to the melting man, where like, like the, the evil is so toxic inside you, you come apart from a cellular level. So I wanted to make a big old monster movie. Like, I was like, let's really go for broke. Like, let's do this movie. The other thing is, look, um, my favorite filmmakers, um, some that I already mentioned, but, you know, guys like David Cronenberg, let's say, um, and there's a lot of body horror in, in Jason Goes to Hell. The thing about Cronenberg is that within 20 minutes into one of his movies, if you watch Scanners, right? The minute that guy's head blows up, right, you're sitting there going, okay, um, I don't know what's going to come next. And this guy's nuts. Like, whoever made this movie is out of his mind. I wanted the audience to feel that way. Like, I love when people ask me, you know, what about that guy being strapped naked to that table and getting kissed by the corner? I'm like, uh-huh. Did it make you feel a little, like, upset? Were you not comfortable sitting in your chair during that scene? That's why it's in the movie. I wanted people to feel uncomfortable. I I didn't want, look, my problem with all of these franchises, all of them, is that the, the villain becomes the hero, and then it becomes comedy. And we lose the whole point of why we started these in the first place. We started them to make you scared. We started you to know, scream and have this great roller coaster ride in the theater, and I started to feel like now we 're just now we just want to know how do they die? Does this eyeball fall out when he 's getting his head crushing it like that 's dull that 's just mechanics by the way, I, the kills in Jason goes to hell are insane, and I take tremendous pride and Bob Kurtzman and the rest of the k team, Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero, those guys freaking killed it. Like they did an unreal job on that movie. But for me, it was like, I want to tell a story about, look, I was a little kid when the first movie came out. I was really a little kid. I was 11. I was now in my mid-20s. My lead characters in that movie are all in their mid-20s. I was like, I want to tell the story of, of, of my generation that grew up with these movies, and now we're in our mid-20s. And, uh, by the way, initially, Stephen Freeman's character, the, the John D. LeMay character in the film, was Tommy Jarvis. And that was kind of, I, I wanted that feeling of like, Tommy Jarvis has killed Jason, he gets his girlfriend pregnant, but doesn't know that she's pregnant, she leaves him, and now he's just this loser at Crystal Lake with like, now what is Tommy going to do? Like, what's Tommy going to do? The only thing he's done is obsess about Jason his entire life. So now what is he? And I wanted this sense of this guy who was just really like, had nowhere to go. The other thing is that. Oh,
2: well, well, did Did you, did you um, actually uh, pursue getting Tom Matthews? We, uh, no, we,
1: we, we couldn't use, we couldn't use Tommy uh, Jarvis. We oh, couldn't use course. it. Yeah. Paramount. Paramount sold us Jason, and they sold us everything in the first movie. We couldn't even use Friday the 13th. We couldn't use the title Friday the 13th. Couldn't use it. Jason Voorhees, Pamela Voorhees, that I was okay. with. Crystal Lake was fine. I could not have Friday the 13th or anything in the subsequent films. So I wrote it as Tommy Jarvis. I wanted to go after Tom Matthews. That's who I wanted initially. Mm -hmm. Couldn't Mm -hmm. Mm have So here's the thing. The other part of this, if you look at the movie, because again, it was the final Friday they they were going to make, they were going to do other things with Jason after this, but this was the last Friday, the 13th movie as they wanted to do it. So my whole concept was the first movie is about a mother who loses her son. My movie is about a father who finds his daughter. So there were all of these bookends I was trying to create so that the film had this sort of, that, that the series had a satisfying conclusion. That was what I hoped for. Um, when it came to the casting, um, that was, I, I, I was 100% responsible for the people in that movie as far as the choices that were made. I had incredible casting directors. Um, by the way, I'm a huge proponent of... of, of Cast directors getting an Academy Award, I think it's, I think the only reason that cast directors have not gotten uh, an Academy Award up to this point is because most cast directors classically have been women. Um, and it's been one of those things where directors never want to say that anybody helped them find their cast. Like so, like we have a Rolodex of every actor in Hollywood and we just pick them out. It. It's all bullshit. Directors are assisted by by casting directors and it's the most important part of our entire job. There's nothing more important than exactly. our casting.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Right.
1: So I had uh, a guy named Barry Moss who was one of Broadway's biggest casting directors and in fact, he cast I know I know now we all cringe, but he cast every episode of the Cosby show. He did the entire run of the show. Um, but this guy, he, the number of people who won Tony awards off of his casting for Broadway is like I- incredible. And he had an associate in LA named David Giella. So these were the two guys who brought me people. So when it came to um, Creighton Duke, here's what happened. We did a reading of Jason Goes Down. We did a table read, right? And we would do a lot of those because of my theater background. And Sean actually came from the Broadway theater as well. So the two of us, we loved hearing actors beat up the material. And we could always tell, if a good actor can't make this work, we got to rewrite. So we'd bring in incredible actors. Well, we got Tony Award winning actor, John Rubenstein, who played Pippin on Broadway, um, who has had an illustrious career, brilliant actor, he came in and read Creighton Duke and he was incredible. I mean, he was amazing and we were all like, this is, and he, he read it in a way that none of us had ever thought about it. He changed our perception of it. It was amazing. Right? So John Rubenstein was going to play Creighton Duke and John Rubenstein is a thin white dude. Now, again, It never says in the script whether the character is white, black, Asian. It doesn't say anything. It's just Creighton Duke. He's, and really what Creighton Duke is, uh, Dean Laurie and I both, my my co-writer and I, the two of us are obsessed with Jaws. Obsessed. And it was our quint. It's why in the movie he says, I'll get you the mask, the machete, the whole damn thing. It's literally out of the dialogue of Jaws. So when uh, when John Rubinstein's agent got nervous that he was going to actually be in a Friday, the 13th movie, here's this Tony award winning actor going to do a Friday, the 13th movie. He was like, John, you cannot do this movie. And he pulled him out of it. And we're talking with only a short time before the movie. So we were freaking out, like who's Creighton Duke. And I had so fallen in love with John's performance. I was like, I'm screwed. So now Barry Moss comes to me and he says, listen, how do you feel about going black with the character? I said, I feel great about it. Who are the actors? Like, bring me a great actor. So he says, I've got a few people I want you to meet. Yafet Koto came in to talk to us, but, but new line wouldn't let us hire him because he had just been in Freddy's dead. And they didn't want to cross the streams on those movies at all. They were, they would just not let me have Yafet. Um, and I love, I love Yafet. Uh, the other people who came in, the next guy to come in was Tony Todd, who was freaking amazing. I
2: love him. I love Oh, him. my
1: God. And he's the sweetest man. He's such a good dude. Like, I'm so lucky that I've gotten to hang with him since that time. Um, I, I met Tony. He did a wonderful read. Beauti- that voice. My God, that voice. Uh, but then Stephen Williams came in. Stephen Williams was three lines into his audition. And I turned to my cast director and I was like, that's it. That's the guy. That's the guy. That's it. We found him. I don't need to see anybody else. That's, that's, that's Creighton Duke. Um, and I, I have to tell you, like, St- Stephen and I are, are, are good friends to this day. We're actually working on a Creighton Duke-inspired project because I can't get the rights to Crate and Duke and separated from all the oh, man. <laughs> but he and I he and I are actually working on a Crate and Duke project right now but it's not a Crate and Duke project it's Crate and Duke inspired um, he, he plays he plays a character called the man um, some people call him the man with no name um, and we are um, so we're deep, we're deep into that anyway Stephen the minute we sat down together to talk about the movie um, and by the way my, my episode of the, of, of the film, my chapter of the movies is the only chapter of the Friday 13th series to have a full month of rehearsal before we shot one frame of film. I, I told my actors, I said, I'm giving you my time for free. Anybody who wants to rehearse, let's rehearse. And I had cast mostly theater actors. So they all wanted to rehearse. They were like, wait a minute, we're going to rehearse the movie. I was like, yes. Yes. I want you guys to have the best chance to give the best performances in this thing. And I know when we get to set, I'm not going to have as much time to work performance because I'm going to be dealing with blood effects and stunts. We had a stunt and a makeup effect on every single day of the movie. So I'm like, no, let's, let's work the scene. Let's work the script. Let's let's work with each other. And so Steven Williams and I spend weeks um, really talking through Creighton Duke and talking about who he is and what he wants and I have to tell you like the whole prison scene which is my favorite scene in the movie That's, that, that was my favorite scene to shoot um, that scene he's the one who said you know when, when, when I asked John LeMay to give me his hand can I like softly stroke his hand and I was like why? He said, well, we're in prison. I was like, Oh my God, that's awesome. And then we started rewriting on the set. Like we were like, okay, no, 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 no." so here's, and suddenly it became this seduction scene where John LeMay is like, what the heck? And I remember again, my audience was so nervous. Like what? And they had just seen a dude strapped to a table, getting a kiss. They didn't know what I was going to do. And so now they're set and ready to be really uncomfortable in this movie. And then he starts breaking his fingers. So it, it, that was the genius of working with someone like Steven. The two of us were so keyed in with each other that there was a give and take that felt very natural from the second we started working together. I, I love him. By the way, he is a madman. He is totally out of his mind. Um, I mean, he is really nuts. And by the way, I will say that to his face. Like, you're a lunatic. Um, Stephen would do things like, I would need 20 more minutes to set up a shot inside the Voorhees house where the, the sacrificial table is with the stirrups and all that. And I'd say, Stephen, we don't need you for 20. You're good. And Stephen would bend over at the waist, put his head on the table in the room and fall asleep while we were lighting around him. <laughs> and I would go like, uh, Stephen, we're ready, and he would he would stand right back up, stock straight, and go great. What scene? Okay, and he'd go right into the lines, and we'd be like, whoa. And it was simply because he had been sorry, guys. He had been partying so bad from the night before. Um, he had been partying so much that he was uh, just completely out of his mind when he would show up but he was ready to work every second, never missed a line, never missed a cue, wasn't one second late, but he would just fall asleep right in the middle of the set, and I'd wake him up, and he'd be ready to go. It was was a very unique and remarkable (laughs) experience, like one of the best I've ever had.
2: You know when i funny? When I see him on on camera, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking a little bit Richard Roundtree, Mm -hmm. but a monster hunter. Yeah, the Richard Roundtree, tree, uh, maybe a Thomas Razzlela, uh you know, kind of uh, kind of guy for those fans like myself of Blackula and uh, totally, uh, and oh, so the cool.
1: best, the but best.
2: he he is he is burned out hero. He's, you, you mentioned the, the moment where they talk about where he where he says where he's on the hill and he says to himself, "No, he, he ain't." You know, he like he's I don't not think dead. so. I don't think so. It's like um, there's a thing. There's a thinking that goes off in his head, like uh, like oh shit! Now I got to do this, my you know, I got to do this myself. Um, yep. A little, maybe a little bit like the Donald Pleasant's character, uh, it, you know, in, in Halloween two when he sees the sure. body is sure. in and all this stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, and he and he's talking about it's not over yet. Let's, uh, you know, let's go. I really like that. And I think Steven brings that, uh, to, uh, you know, to the role. There's a steely-eyed determination.
1: He's brilliant. Him. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant yeah. actor and, 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 and also just a, 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 a peach of a guy. Like he's just a good dude. Yeah. And I, I will tell you like, I, I first I, on that movie in particular, I was very, very lucky cause I would say like 95, 98% of my cast were the, best people you could ask for. Like I I was so assisted in just having great actors, um, who just wanted to, um, they wanted to play and they, and they never treated it like a Friday the 13th movie. That was the thing. Like we never spoke about Friday the 13th. We spoke about the characters. We spoke about the essence of what they were trying to, what I was trying to portray story-wise and how they could serve that material. And, you know, it's, it's um, look, I also think the fact that my cast is an adult cast, you know, um, you know, people like Rusty Schwimmer, I mean, she's, she's a brilliant Chicago trained actress, you know, um, Erin Gray, Erin Gray didn't want to do the movie. Erin Gray came in and met with me because her son was so in love with horror movies that she promised she would come in and meet me because she had gotten this audition her, by the way, her and Tippy Hedrin, I met with both of them on the same day. And, um, and so Aaron sat down with me, told me flat out, look, honey, I'm not doing a Friday 13th movie, but I promised my son I would come in and meet with you and talk with you. And she started to pitch me her son to help on the makeup department. He was a teenager, and I, and I got him a job. I was like, I'll, I'll help him. Yeah, of course. But I said to her, I said, Aaron, look, I said, I said, would you just just consider it? Because here's the thing. I said, I don't want you because you were in Buck Rogers. I I, I don't care about that. I said, I want you because I think you're a terrific actor. And I think that you've not been given the chance to be that. I said, I think most people hire you because you're a model. I'm hiring you because you're an actor. So much so, I'm telling you, I want you to wear almost no makeup in this movie. I want you as dressed down as possible. I want this to be about your acting. She called her agent and said, I want to do this movie. Literally right after that. Nice. And we had an incredible time together. We, I mean, again, it's, it's, I think that sadly, a lot of our industry, a lot of the directing in our industry has lost sight of the fact that that that's how we paint, you know, people became so obsessed with sort of, camera moves and lighting and and the Michael Bay School of Filmmaking which I get it I get the image stuff I get it but we've lost sight of that of that connection that a director should have with an actor to help them find the character and tell the story and you know you look at let's say a movie like Swingers which is one of my favorite examples to bring up especially to students where I go, okay, that movie looks awful. Like, it is an ugly movie. and It was shot at the bottom of a, of a, of a dirty shot clock. Characters, and you love those guys. You love their friendships. You care about them because of the acting and because of the writing. And that, to me, is, should be the first focus of a director, not how cool does this look. Yes, you want it to look cool. Absolutely. And I hired, I mean, look, my cinematographer, Bill Dill, who shot the movie. um, And he, again, to this day, we're close friends. Because I, I I had someone who always had my back, and I would tell him what I wanted it to look like, and he would make it look better. But it wasn't me forcing it with him; it was letting him do his job and not micromanaging that. Yes, if I didn't like something, I would say no, 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 I'm not crazy about that. Um, but he was so incredible in 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 having a vision that look. All of the team, everybody that I ever work with, I I have a rule with producers where no one can be hired without me meeting with them first. And everybody has to have read the script. I don't care if it's a PA. You got to read the script and we got to talk about it because I want every person on set to feel like they contributed to the movie. Like it's their movie. I hate when people go, well, this is your movie. No, 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 no. I look, even though I went to NYU, I don't believe in the auteur theory. I think it's nonsense. Um, you know, uh, Citizen Kane was not made by one man. It's just a lie. Um, the Godfather would not be the Godfather if Robert Evans didn't come in and say, why are you delivering me a popcorn movie? You made an epic. You made an opera and you're giving me a 90-minute movie? What are you, nuts? De Coppola. So I believe that it is a team that creates, that creates a story. And the most important part of my team as far as telling that story is going to be my DP and my actors. And so I'm very, very choosy about them. I take a long time to cast a movie. Um, and I do that because I, I, I have so much love and respect for the art of performance. Um, it's where I came from and my whole family are performers like, you know, my uncle Ned. Okay. So here's one for you guys. So have y'all seen the burning? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Yes. Cool. So, if you remember the character Eddie in The Burning, he's the guy who takes the girl into the lake and tries to, yeah, and then yeah. he gets he gets the the the, the uh, shears through his throat on the raft in the raft scene. That's my right. uncle Ned, right. my uncle Ned Eisenberg. So, nice. if you if you look him up, he's a, that guy. He's in every third episode of Law and Order as a different lawyer in every damn episode. He's one of those guys you've seen him in a million. He played um, he played the head of the Italian mob in. Um, Last Man Standing, the Bruce Willis movie. Um, wasn't
2: it, Wasn't he also on the uh, on the poster for Bur- the Bernie? I thought no,
1: the no. Actually, here's what's funny. It's a it's a it's supposed to be Eddie and the girl in that shot in that in that frame, right? That guy. They made this like blonde, hunky, romantic. Guy. My uncle Ned is like this skinny Italian-looking, fro hair guy, but plays that character. I'm always like Ned. It's you on the poster. He's like, shut up. Get out of here. So, uh, yeah. No, no, that's uh, Ned, Ned Eisenberg. That's my, that's, my, uh, that's my uncle. So, you know, and, and also, because I'm sure you guys are horror aficionados, um, if you remember the movie uh, uh, Don't Go in the House, 1981, mm-hmm. that is my uncle, Joe Ellison, who wrote and directed that movie.
2: Fantastic. So your family is just really, uh, is just really
1: indoctrinated in horror. They really are. They really are. That is outstanding. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. My mother, uh, the, the, as legend goes, my mother was reading Rosemary's Baby back-to-back with The Exorcist when she was pregnant with me. So I had no choice. I literally had no choice. Like, I came out of the room as like, that's what it's going to be.
2: Okay, the fates were destining you to, uh, to work in horror. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, it's really true. It's really true. Thanks, Ma.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: So we have a few minutes left, Adam. Um, where can we find your work?
1: Um, well, my, my new stuff, uh, what happened was I, you know, I, I, uh, as you had said in the, in the intro, you know, I wrote Texas Chainsaw 3d a couple a few years ago. I wrote that yeah. with my writing partner, my wife, uh, Deborah, um, who, uh, who is, who is my life. Um, and she and I have written a ton of stuff. I've, I've directed a bunch of movies. Um, everything from, like, right after Jason Goes to Hell, I got offered, mm-hmm. like, everything had a, had a part number after it, and I walked from <laughs> all of it. Pumpkinhead 2, Amityville 97, Leprechaun Back, Leprechaun Back 2, Da Hood. Um, all of these movies were offered to me. I turned down all of it um, because I didn't want to be a guy that everything had a part number after it. Right. Um, so I went and made a romantic comedy in New York that became a huge Sundance hit. And a bunch of my work from that point went in a different direction. Um, so I'm really known for like comedy, horror, and action. Um, and I've done all of those things. I directed a movie, uh, wrote and directed a film with Val Kilmer called Conspiracy. Um, I wrote and produced a movie with my wife called Momentum a few years ago that uh, Morgan Freeman, Olga Karolenko, and James purfoy are the stars of. Uh, but after Texas Chainsaw, we had an interesting aha moment. Because the we went to see the movie and um, uh, you know and every writer gets rewritten it happens, but the rewrites were so what? Um, huh? Why would you? <laughs> that didn't make any sense. And then the reviews come out and we get dinged for the bad thing that happened. And I'm like, no, 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 we didn't write that. Wait a minute. Hey, ah. <laughs> so I kind of said, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of tired of, of having other people dictate what we make. Yeah. And, and I, I want to make stuff that I believe in. So Deborah and I got together with this guy, Brian Sexton, who, um, who is very funny cause he hates when I say this cause he gets like way too self-conscious but he is without a doubt the best producer I've ever worked with. Um, And I mean that from the standpoint of, I've never had a producer have my back the way this guy has my back. Nice. And I came to him and I said, look, I said, I gotta ask you, where did all the Roger Cormans go? I said, you know, people try to pass off Blumhouse as like Roger Corman, that's not Roger Corman at all. I'm like, where are the guys who are finding the new talent giving them very little money, but letting them make their story. Like, where are those guys? And Brian was like, you're right. They, they, they don't exist. I'm like, I want to, I want to be that guy. Like, I want to do that. That's the chance I was given. I want to give other people that chance. So we created this company, skeleton crew. And it's about the fact that it's the horror bent without a doubt, but it's also this idea that you're working with a very tight group of people. Um, and, we started, we started making movies. Uh, the first one out of the gate was one that I wrote and directed, um, called secret Santa. Uh, I made it for literally like four bucks and a, and a, and a, and a can of soup. Um, <laughs> and the movie has played 22 festivals. We were a hit at sitches. We were a hit at, fr- we were fr- such a hit at Fright Fest Glasgow that they brought us back for Fright, Fla- Fright Fest London, which they never do. And then Fright Fest. It was the first film that Fright Fest itself released in the UK. Um, so the movie became like this kind of this lovely little little engine that could that was made for nothing. And so that was the first one out of the gate. Uh, of course, we were doing uh, Hearts of Darkness, the making of the final Friday, which is which is the documentary about Jason Goes to Hell, which um, it, it answers a lot of questions that people have asked along the route. I was not going to make that movie. I had no interest in making a documentary about my own work. Um, What happened was last year on my birthday, there were a couple of fans who created a Facebook page that exploded overnight for the movie. It's called uh, Jason goes to hell, the final fan page. And um, suddenly everybody wanted this movie. So I said, okay, we'll put up a crowdfunding campaign. If we can get crowdfunded, I'll make it. I'll produce the movie. I I had a great documentarian I wanted to work with. I was like, we'll do it. And, uh, not only did we get the movie funded, but we went into overages and suddenly, uh, Indiegogo was like, yeah, you guys can just keep this open and keep collecting money to make the movie. I was like, uh, okay. I guess people really want this movie. Mm -hmm. So we're doing that. Um, we have an incredible movie coming, coming very soon, uh, called fat camp massacre that and that's why it's called fat camp massacre um it is it is for people of size what get out was for the african-american community that's what we're trying (laughs) to do um and that's a big part of what our company is we're trying to tell stories that the way george romero did you know night of living dead isn't about zombies night of living dead is about vietnam and the civil rights movement right and that's why it's so enduring. That's why we love that movie. And it's why it's scary, quite frankly, because it's rooted in something that touches us emotionally. And so that's a big part of what Skeleton Crew is trying to do. Um, on Fat Cat Massacre, we're working with all first-time filmmakers. Um, they're amazing. We have an incredible team of people. We just hired our director this week, and she's brilliant. A uh, young woman named Kelsey Bowling. Um, bowling, excuse me. And she is, um, she, she is one of the most exciting talents I've ever witnessed. I, uh, we, we, yeah. You
2: have to cast Rebel Wilson in that, in that film.
1: That would be she's, she's on our list. She's on our list. Um, <laughs> we are, we, I got to tell you the, the best part about this is that um, there are such brilliant actors of size that, get rarely get to play characters that are this, that are the leads of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the tagline of the film, by the way, is get ready for the real hunger games. <laughs> um, so we'll have to we see are... the rest for our next podcast. Absolutely.
0: That, Absolutely. Grim, excuse me. The grim and bloody theater. That's going to be on YouTube. We're going to talk more about the heart of darkness documentary. We'll get into uh, secret Santa. So uh, yeah. Thank you very much for your time, Adam, um, uh, look forward to continue thank it. You. You know, this is going to be our first two-part saga. <laughs> We're going to keep it going.
1: <laughs> oh, well, guys, I, I'm having a ball. You guys are amazing. You guys are awesome. Thank Got you. it. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much for
0: tuning in. This cool. was the Grim and Bloody podcast with our star of the show, Adam Marcus. Here I am. Director of Final Friday. And uh, we'll be speaking with him again. On more of the good stuff that you heard from here, and probably in a couple weeks uh, when we'll air it next. So, thank you again, and uh, you have a good night.